And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, or five. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Force 5 Podcast. I am your host, ex-video store clerk, wannabe screenwriter, and fellow list nerd, Jason Kleberg. Twins have always had an interesting place in cinema, used mostly as a gimmick like mistaken identity films, which kick off things like Maximum Risk or the Chris Rock slapper Bad Company, the nature versus nurture movies like Big Business, or just sticking them in scenes because some people think twins are creepy, like in The Shining. In one of my very early, very terrible scripts, I remember I wrote two twins in. They were these villains who had some stupid special power where the twin being hit wouldn't feel pain, but the other one not being hit would feel pain. So in order to slow down the one who was like chasing the main character, they would have to find a way to hurt the other twin. Jeez, that just sounds really awful. Uh, Kenny Nybart. The other half of podcasts like it's 1999 is my guest on this episode, and we went with this topic because he has twins, and not only does he bring up some really great observations about how twins are used in film, but our lists are really quite varied and pretty fun, and I guarantee there are a few on our list that you won't see coming. I actually thought about getting kind of cute with the twins topic and doing like five Minnesota twins in movies because I thought that would be uh, really funny, but I didn't get that clever. So uh, little big league and rookie of the year, not on my list. And I should also say before we get into what I've been watching, speaking of films about twins, one that only comes up in our honorable mentions is the 1999 Jackie Chan film Twin Dragons. And I was recently a guest on podcasts like it's 1999 to talk about it with Kenny and Phil Iscove. So after you get done listening to this show, go check out their show, Podcasts Like It's 1999. I hope it's up by the time this airs, but if it's not, it'll be there soon. So just subscribe to their podcast too, and you won't miss it when it comes out. Or stay um, stay posted to the social media channels, because I will be blasting that out when that episode airs. All right. The last show with Noah Evslin was Top 5 Hawaii Films, and you told us what your favorites were on social media. There were only two that were not mentioned on the show. Jay Ferber, TV writer and comic book writer, he writes for shows like Supergirl, said The Perfect Getaway, which is a great little thriller set in the Hawaiian jungle. Uh, Steve Zahn in that one, and Timothy Oliphant, great movie. And I, um, I'm surprised I didn't even mention it. And the New World Pictures podcast said the surf movie Blue Crush, which I have never seen. On to what I've been watching lately. I've got two late 80s films to talk about. I have all of my physical media in this deep closet that I've repurposed as my own little film vault in my house. And when I moved in, I built some custom shelves. I put up a steelbook wall. I've got some movie posters in there. Honestly, it's one of my favorite little rooms in the house, but it's filling up. And that leaves me with two choices. Either I stop buying movies altogether, or I purge those that might not deserve a spot in the Kleberg movie library. So I've began an exercise in watching those films in my collection that I have never seen so that I can decide if they deserve to stay in the closet or get put up on eBay. And going in alphabetical order, first up was 1987's The All Nighter. The Last Night. We are going to party. You like? The last party. <laughs> the last chance to find one 
earth-shattering, significant romance. You know what you need? An older man. Okay. The last moment before adulthood to screw up really good. I got a job waiting for my graduation. Fifty thousand a year will buy a lot of beer. Things are going great and they're only getting better. Seen anything unusual? I'm doing all right, getting good grades. The future's so bright. I gotta wear shades. Susanna Hoffs, America's hottest female rock singer, in her motion picture debut, The All Nighter. I gotta wear shades. We're just getting to the great stuff. This film ended up in my collection because Kino, who put the disc out, always has a few really great sales during the year and everything gets extremely discounted and I picked it up as a blind buy during one of those sales. It's about five students from the fictional Southern California Pacifica College. They're about to graduate, but as they prepare for one final party and pass into the official world of adulthood, emotions run wild. The All-Nighter is one of about a thousand Southern California student beach comedies that came out in the 80s, although this one is much more harmless than films like Hard Bodies and The Beach Girls, as it's rated PG-13 and runs slight on risque situations and certainly on language. The story focuses on five students. Gina, who is documenting the final days of school with her enormous Olympus video camera. Molly, the beautiful class valedictorian who's wrestling with whether or not to tell her crush about her true feelings. Val, who's engaged to be married and is questioning if she's making the right decision to marry Brad. And finally, Killer and his friend CJ, two surfer meatheads who only care about catching women and catching waves. The standout in the cast is Susanna Hoffs, who plays Molly. The film was written and directed by Hoff's mother, Tamar Simonhoffs, and was probably intended as a starring vehicle to transition Susanna from music to the big screen because she was the lead singer of the Bangles at the time. If that was the intent, unfortunately, it did not translate into much as she didn't do much else in the film world aside from bit roles in Austin Powers films, which were directed by her husband, Jay Roach. She has one of the bigger emotional lifts here and gets to show off her acting skills. And although she's not perfect, she is serviceable and miles ahead of anybody else in the cast. Joan Cusack is also here as Gina, the group film nerd who I definitely identified with. Unfortunately, she doesn't get much screen time. And uh, most of the time when she's on screen, her face is half covered by that big ass camera. The film is listed as a comedy, but doesn't feel like there are any deliberately comedic situations until a gag about an hour in, in which some of the girls are mistaken for hookers by some overly vigilant staff members at the prestigious Hotel Playa del Mar, which leads to a bunch of miscommunications, an arrest, and probably the best moment in the movie when Pam Greer shows up randomly as a police sergeant. Even then, the payoffs aren't as good as they could have been with a stronger script and more comedically gifted actors. The All-Nighter is a cute, harmless 80s romp that could have been a whole lot better if every character was just smarter. As is, I don't know what Pacifica College was teaching people because everybody on screen is as dumb as a bag of hammers. The movie doesn't bring anything new to the table, but I still had a decent time with it simply because of how charming Susanna Hoffs was. I thought she was, um, she was great. The music is pretty good throughout a perfect 80s time capsule, although it's curiously missing anything from the Bengals. But the film score... The film score, which was produced by Charles Bernstein, who's capable. He's a capable composer. He did the scores for classics like Nightmare on Elm Street and Cujo. This score is fucking terrible. It is so bad. The purpose of watching this film, as previously stated, was to see if it deserves a place in the great Kleberg film vault. And the verdict is 
This one is going up on eBay. It's just not a film I see myself watching again, and it's not important or memorable enough to want to show my kid later. The other film I watched this week was uh, Slice of Sleaze from Vinegar Syndrome 1989's Murder Weapon. Where are your mom and dad? Oh, they leave early on the weekends. It's just us and the boys. It's party time. Come and get it! Uh, uh, you want to play? Because Dawn and Amy have big plans. He's the biggest. <laughs> Why did Amy invite all her old boyfriends? Well, she missed them. <laughs> Is this Fantasy Island or what? <laughs> You're both crazy. Someone doesn't know when to stop. Don't be a puss. Chug it. Eric is so dangerous. He shoots people for a living. And now, somebody's trying to kill us. The ultimate party. I think I fucked him to death. Has become a killer bash. <gasps> Linnea Quigley and Karen Russell. Murder weapon. What the fuck? I thought you said this was going to be a party. Two women who coerce their way out of a mental institution hold a party to reunite with their old boyfriends, but a mysterious killer starts knocking off the boys one by one. Will the killer be unmasked before it's too late? David Dakota is a really interesting filmmaker from the school of Roger Corman. He's prolific, having over 170 director credits since his debut in 1984, ranging from suntan, oil-soaked trash like Beach Babes from Beyond and Revenge of the Babes, the 1313 series, which I have never seen but appear to be direct-to-video crap. There are 14 films in that series, 14 1313 films. Should have been 13. Just stop with 13 and a series of TV films that all start with the phrase The Wrong, like The Wrong Crush, The Wrong Boy Next Door, The Wrong Prince Charming. And there are 26 films, yes, 26 films in that series, and a gaggle of Lifetime Christmas movies. Murder Weapon starts with an absolutely bizarre opening sequence as Dawn, played by Linnea Quigley, walks around a neighborhood and then into her house with the wardrobe style and grace of a 12-year-old who just happens to look 30. She grabs a big old glass of milk and then looks out the window at a supermodel who's tanning in the backyard. I guess this is supposed to be her sister, but uh, you just don't know. There's like literally no indication what is going on. The editing, by the way, of this overlong scene is awful as we watch the model apply tanning oil to the same places about a dozen times. At the same time, she's lubing herself up. This creepy dude wearing what appears to be a Christmas sweater is snooping around the backyard like he's in an episode of Scooby-Doo. He sneaks up on her and, suspenseful moment, kisses her. It was a swerve. He's not a killer. He's the boyfriend. The two then go into the house and make love, but unbeknownst to them, Dawn is watching with the curiosity of someone who's never seen the act of sex before. When they're done and Mr. Cosby sweater heads to the bathroom and take a shower, Dawn grabs a knife, murders her sister, and then gets into the shower with the dude and kills him too. Cut to a mental hospital where we get a 10-minute scene of Dawn trying to coax her way to freedom, and moments later, she and her friend Amy, who was also in the hospital, played by the stunning Karen Russell, are poolside somewhere planning a party. The party consists of these two ladies and six dudes, one of whom is weirdly obsessed with moosehead beer, which I can only assume was some weird product placement. He also wears a moosehead shirt and says, We're bailing if I don't have a moosehead in my hands, 
when he gets to the party. One of the men walks in as Amy is taking a shower and holds up a razor and shaving cream as if he brought them to the party and then essentially shaves her legs for a few minutes while we cut between his and her smiles before it's cut short by one of Amy's death dreams. See, every time Amy dozes off, she has visions of herself being killed by these guys in various gruesome ways. I know this all so far sounds like it makes no sense and it's not my fault. <laughs> it's the movie's fault. We also learn here during the party that both Amy and Don's dads are mobsters who apparently have photo albums on their coffee tables that have Polaroids of all the men they've killed. The last dude to show up to the party, Eric, a heavy metal singer who looks like he walks straight out of band practice with Jesse and the Rippers shows up. The party really gets going and two of the guys start throwing a football around in the front yard while listening to instrumental rock and roll, you know, the cornerstones of any great bash. It's then that we get our first glimpse of the black glove Jallo inspired killer. I'll be honest, I wasn't expecting much from the kills because of how the first half of this film was playing out, but the first kill, which doesn't happen until about 45 minutes in, involves a sledgehammer to the skull. And holy shit did it deliver. Uh, we see the hammer hit this rubber head multiple times as it just turns to mush, you got blood going everywhere, it's super gory, and it's that point in the film that I kind of perked up a bit, because I knew the second half of the film wasn't just going to be these stilted, odd conversations anymore. It was going to be stilted, odd conversations with some great kills. I do want to take a second to talk about the dialogue in this film, because it's so unnatural, and it's so weird. Dawn and one of her ex-boyfriends go to the store for beer, and when they get back, Amy walks out and says, Well, you guys made it back? Were you not expecting them to make it back? And two guys, Bart and Kevin, start wondering where Mr. Sledgehammer to the head went. Kevin said, he's probably just looking around. To which Bart replies, figures. Now, he just met this guy like 30 minutes ago, so I don't know what figures means. But then Kevin follows up with, well, I'm not his mom. It's just his bad luck. <laughs> like, what is going on with the dialogue in this film? As the night progresses, more people have sex and more people die in gruesome ways. Some that make absolutely no sense, but it doesn't even matter because they're kind of awesome. One guy's laying on a bed and this black gloved hand comes up through his chest like, uh, like Kevin Bacon in Friday the 13th, but it's just the hand and it comes out like a chestburster in Alien and feeds him his own heart. Another guy gets a broken champagne bottle through the neck. Uh, and the effects, while cheap, are really fun. Hats off to David Barton, who did the gore effects in this one. Just a, just a ton of fun. I can't, however, say the same about whoever scored the film. The dramatic music is laughable, and the sexy jazz riff that plays during intimate scenes sound like they're straight out of an episode of Rugrats. The editing is also extremely poor, oftentimes ping-ponging between close-ups during conversation to the point of dizziness and cutting away from people as their mouth starts saying something, with, of course, the character saying nothing. And once we start getting into the thick of things, the film inexplicably switches to a flashback of Amy at the hospital, which brings all of the film's momentum to a grinding halt. Overall, Murder Weapon, terribly made, but extremely fun. The film was shot in just six days, and you can definitely tell, but there's something oddly charming about it. It features two beautiful women with a lot of nudity, seems to have something to say about female equality, although that's not at all explored outside of the, the hospital interrogation room flashbacks. It's got great gore and dialogue that's so weird and bad that you can't help but be entertained. The screenwriter tries to zig and zag with who the murderer is, but you'll probably know who it is because the film kind of tips its hand like 10 minutes in and it's entirely unbelievable, but it's fun enough anyway. 
The Vinegar Syndrome disc looks pretty good. They did a complete restoration on the picture, but I actually thought the sound on this disc was terrible, specifically the levels of dialogue to the background music. I actually ended up turning subtitles on because a lot of what's being said was garbled by the sound mix. Like the background music was, was louder than the dialogue. Um, I'm not sure what happened there. This normally doesn't happen with Vinegar Syndrome discs. The extras for this movie include a commentary track by Miss Quigley and the director, David Dakota, as well as a two-minute introduction to the film by the director. Now, I did listen to about 75% of this commentary track, and unfortunately, it's really poorly done. Dakota doesn't seem like he prepared anything at all. He straight up states that he hasn't seen the movie since its release, which is a little bit troubling when you think about commentaries because you know a lot of the stammering that's happening is because they are trying to remember things about the scene that they're trying to talk about. Uh, there's a lot of stammering, a lot of things are repeated. It also sounds like he's super distracted and looking at his phone or something at times. Linnea Quigley is also there. She tries to keep him on track and focus, but his thoughts are just too scattered to enjoy it. And shit, at one point, he actually takes a cell phone call during the viewing. So yeah, this is one of the one of the um, worst commentary tracks I've listened to in a long time. But the movie, I think, is worth checking out. Murder Weapon from 1989. Grab a beer, get some friends, smoke some weed. You're going to have a good time. Speaking of good times, let's get to today's sponsor. Spring is here, and if you're not a loser you're gonna get invited to some parties. And whenever I'm invited to a barbecue or a pool party or whatever, I always struggle with what to bring. I mean, if you bring a crappy beer, for example, people are gonna assume you don't care, but if you bring a good beer, you know most people won't appreciate the money you spent on it, unless listener Joseph Bridges is there too, but that's another story. So what do you bring? Food! But you can't bring something like potato salad or macaroni salad, which could be sitting in the hot sun in your car all day. So if you struggle with this, I've got the perfect product for you. Corn balls. Crispy on the outside, fluffy on the inside, and as healthy as injecting vitamins straight into your veins, probably. With the Corn Baller, produced by the Bluth Company, you can have delicious corn balls any day of the year. Don't let fake news like scandal makers fool you. The Corn Baller is perfectly safe. And although it was banned in the United States in the 1970s, you can still buy them in Mexico, and they will ship to the United States, as long as you don't tell anyone. These start at the ridiculously low price of 1,375 pesos, but if you tell the Bluth Company that the Force 5 podcast sent you, they'll give you Diaz Porciento off of your first order and send along a free sample of Timasil. So not only will you love your cornballer, you'll finally love your family as well. All right, let's get to twins with Kenny Nybart. Welcome back to the Force 5 podcast. Tonight, I am joined by Kenny Nybart. He's been a writer on shows like Entourage and Step Up High Water and currently hosts the amazing show Podcast Like It's with our friend of the show, Phil Iskov. Kenny, how are you tonight? I'm fantastic. Thank you, Jason, for having me on. What a nice intro. Man, I'm, I'm so excited to have you on. Like I told Phil, love the show. What's next? Because, I mean, podcasts like It's 99, you've you've been going on for four years now. All the films of 99 are pretty much in the can for you. What's going to what's gonna happen next? Well, they're not all in the can. We have one year left, um, and we still have some really great movies and, like, so many horrible movies to do. <laughs> but, like, so many just, just you know, they're, they're the bad movies, and then there are the movies that time has forgotten. We're actually doing one tomorrow, Random Hearts, Cindy Lumet's Random Hearts, that um, 
you know, I think they thought it was going to be a big deal. And uh, Harrison Ford has tried to have wiped from the face of the earth. So <laughs> we have a year of we have a year of random hearts and that ilk and a few really good ones in there. Uh, on you know on our Patreon we we do eighty nine and we just announced that we're going to be doing two thousand and nine for this year, which is a uh, to me just an incredibly fascinating year because I think you look at at two thousand and nine and you think that was yesterday that was that 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 feels like yesterday yeah but that was before Netflix even dropped House of Cards so and it was before you know it. Iron Man and Dark Knight were 08. In 09, virtually no superhero movies came out, I think, except maybe X-Men Wolverine. So it was before um, this kind of streaming thing and superhero thing dominated our cultural landscape. And it was also the first year of 10 nominations since, you know, the the, the 40s. And uh, the nom- the best picture nominations are amazing eclectic so weird and wonderful so like whereas 99 and 89 i think we we did out of out of love for those two years like a like a deep abiding love of those films 2009 i think is you know one obviously we were going to do something with a nine because um you know we're we're very simple-minded people but (laughs) it 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 also uh is an incredible fulcrum point for the film industry and in some ways might be kind of our last great year how as sad as that sounds but there there have certainly been great films and there's certainly certainly been years that have had like you know six seven eight really really amazing films that like will stand the test of time but this year really has about 30 or 40 that um that are really exciting movies so that's 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 what's next for us after 99 is done uh i i have no clue um who knows we'll see yeah i guess if you got to stay with a nine you'd be going 79 39 was an incredible year everyone knows that so we can (laughs) we 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 could dive into one of the great film years of all time 39 uh we phil and i did the thing about a year ago where we looked at 79 we looked at all the five, 79, 84, 89, uh, 94, and, and, and onward, and kind of we, we, we've, we've gamed that a little bit for all those, you know, every five years, and part of that was because, you know, 94 is such a ridiculous year and exciting, but I don't think we're going to do 79, uh, and I don't think we're going to do 2019, the last year of civilization. Um, we'll see. We'll see. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. Well, podcast like it's 99 still going, and there's so many classics from that year. The Matrix, Fight Club, Baby Geniuses, of course. Yep, which we've done. (laughs) I'm wondering if there are any films from 99 that you've changed your mind on in reevaluation, like films that maybe you didn't like originally that you end up liking more because of the show, or even movies that maybe you liked in 99 and then rewatched it and thought, well, maybe this isn't as good as I thought it was. It's funny. The movie in the beginning, we did a bunch that I liked in 99 and don't like anymore. Uh, the two that jumped to the top of my head are American pie and American beauty. Mm. Um, and we did both of those films within the first 10. <laughs> I heard the story about the American pie one. The, what was the story? Isn't that the one that ended up not airing? 
Oh, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you the story. I, so this is what I was saying, Jay. I don't care. So basically, um, <laughs> so uh, the 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 American we felt this way. I don't know. No, if he, he, he didn't tell it America. on the air, so you, you don't have to tell it on the air either. I'm happy to tell it on the air. I don't care. <laughs> okay. This is so. Before you and I got on mic, I was telling you how you know I I just kind of shoot for the hip and say whatever I feel, and I always have this little you know kind of voice in my head, which is like most of these people are still working in Hollywood. There's always the possibility that I'm going to work with these people. Maybe I shouldn't be so hard on some of these films and particularly some of these filmmakers but i also feel like what i'm doing is invalid if i'm not being 100 honest that being said uh i was up for a job uh that i really wanted with uh chris white's company <laughs> and it was it was all it was um I'm not going to say the other guy because I think people will know potentially what the what the show is, but I don't want to say that. But uh, sure. it was with Chris White's company, and Chris White's by all by all accounts is an incredibly nice guy. He is represented by people I know. He's friends with people I know. He's like obviously made great films like About a Boy. He is you know a pro. Uh, he also made American Pie, which is like regressive garbage, and. <laughs> I was very harsh at American Pie. So when I was up for this job, I, I asked, you know, Phil and our producer, Ernie, if we could pull it because God forbid he should hear me shitting all of this movie. It turns out it it's it was I mean, it was also based on a property that was written by a guy who had a ninety nine movie. And I'm not gonna say what that movie is, but I will say it's the worst movie I saw I've seen so far. Ooh. So uh we pulled that one too. So <laughs> I didn't get that job. We can put them back up. Um, but yeah, they the American Pie and American Beauty are the ones I like less. The the ones there, there are, I guess, a few that maybe I liked more, but more there were ones that I was either I had no expectations for or I was kind of nervous about um, because of reputation or subject matter. Uh, and so, like, there was. Um, Two I'd never seen were Last Night, which is a, a Canadian film that is one of my three favorite films of uh, of this year, of 99. It's basically about the last night on Earth, and uh, that's tried and true and well-worn territory, but the way that it's done um, in this film, it's Don McKellar film, is is kind of amazing and heartbreaking and, and really resonates with me in a way that, I don't know, like Don't Look Up doesn't. And uh, then there's a film called Girl on a Bridge, which is a French film that uh, I think is like the sexiest film I've, I've ever seen. And the two main characters never touch each other. And then um, not to be, you know, all kind of, uh, you know, hoity-toity, um, the, the biggest and most wonderful surprise of the year was Dudley Do-Right. Oh, Brendan Fraser. It's a movie I was genuinely like, I, I don't want to spend 90 minutes of my life watching Dudley Do-Right. Uh, because you know, it's like a uh, secondhand embarrassment. Yeah. Brendan Fraser, who I love. And it's, it's this like very, to me, I thought it was a very like sad moment in his career that he did this like third rate Canadian cartoon Mountie and everyone hated it. And it was like sad and weird and ugly and stupid. And Dudley Duet is so fucking funny. 
It's like, <laughs> I can't explain it. it he commits a, a million percent. Alfred Belita is the villain. He is brilliant. Sarah, Sarah Jessica Parker is uh, is the love interest. She's brilliant. Like it's just it's a it's an amazing, funny, weird, wild, goofy romp. And uh, and for you know that's a a a movie that I don't think I would ever 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 had watched otherwise. And uh, yeah, I, I think that there are. Hidden gems, both, you know, high culture, low coach, low culture, high art, low art in every year. And I feel kind of fortunate that we've, you know, undertaken this exercise where we watch them all. It's one of the few movies I watched uh, over. I watched twice before the podcast. And something I'm about to put on this list, I also watched twice before another podcast I was on. Ooh. All right. Well, let's get to our, our topic tonight. Top five Twins in film. Why this topic, Kenny? I have twins. That's why I have. <laughs> I have. Tw- I have twins. My nine-year-old twins, Layla and Rollins, boy and girl, and uh, and uh, I think that um, twins are an incredible blessing, and I'm very lucky to have them. And I, uh, you know, it's funny you you suggested it. I thought it was a really great suggestion, and dove right into it, and. Um, I think twin films are lacking a little bit, to be honest. So my list is wild. Yeah, I was I was thinking the same thing because when you said, yep, we're going to do this topic, there were a couple that came straight to my mind. And then I started really thinking about it. And it's like, wow, there. this is a, a topic that's largely unexplored in film. Now, you mentioned that you had kind of a, a, a rule or, or some way that you wanted to kind of stick to your picks and and kind of narrow stuff down what was that criteria for you so it wasn't uh it wasn't something i went in thinking in fact there are a few films uh that i am crazy about where twins are prominent but um i there there are two things i kind of wanted to avoid i wanted to avoid long lost twins Mm -hmm. and i wanted to avoid uh the twin reveal so the reveal that these people are twins. And the reason for that is because neither the long lost twin is, you know, almost entirely a construct of, of narrative, um, of fiction. It's not a really a real thing. It's happened, you know, a, more clearly more times in movie and TV than it's happened in real life. Right. Um, so that doesn't speak to the experience of twins to me. And the twin reveal um, while very cool in a few movies that, that utilize it well, to me makes it not a film about twins. Um, it's not a twin about, it's not a, it's not a movie about the twin experience. It's a movie, if anything, about the way we perceive twins. And, uh, it, to me, it kind of takes away some of their personhood. Because twins are more than, you know, my twins aren't identical. Obviously, there's only plays with identical twins. But twins are more than just, you know, two people who look at each other and can double for each other here or there. Um, They're, you know, obviously real people. So the movie that the movies that I chose. All uh, there, there, there is one that is kind of a long lost twin, but um, (laughs) but but that but. (laughs) You'll, you'll you'll see why I think it kind of plays differently, and uh, for the most part, they are uh, they they are about the twin experience and about living with your twin, 
um, and understanding, you know, the way that that unique relationship plays into the narrative. You know, my criteria was about the same as yours, and I didn't plan it that way. But looking at my list, that's just kind of the way it worked out. There's one that I think would break your rules, but I think the other four are are right in line with what you're thinking. Before we get to our picks here, just a, a side note or just a side question. How many of your picks feature actual twins versus an actor playing the same role twice? Uh, uh great question. Um so it's two are two are uh two different actors and three are played by the same actor. Got it. Okay. So no actual twins on your list. No, you mean like no Tia and Tamara? <laughs> right, like, right. N- no, no, no. I got no Do you twins. have any? Uh yeah, I do yes, have no one. Olsen. I do have one movie that features actual twins. Oh, that's awesome. No, I don't. All right. Well, we'll let's see how much crossover we have here. Uh, Kenny Nybart, you ready to get to this list? I Well, yes. Now I'm you know, ready to lose all my credibility because of where I'm going with, with, with this number five pick. You know what's going to happen? You know what's happening here right now? I know what's going to happen. No, 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 no. What? You just made the list. You know, when when anybody comes on Force Five, you should know that I have no credibility. So you're you're already on a playing field above mine. But Kenny Nybart, what's number five on your list of top five twins in film? So I did. Um, I've been on screen drafts a few times, and the last time I was on screen draft, I did top. I did uh, top Razzie winners, the mm-hmm. best Razzie films. Great show, by the way. And thank you. So you may know where I'm going with this. Uh, I rode very hard for the film I put at number six, and I didn't necessarily think it would make this list considering it's going against you know all twin films of all time. But I watched this film twice for the Razzie thing, and I swear to fucking God, I love this movie. This is Adam Sandler and Adam Sandler <laughs> in Jack and Jill. In every family, there's one person who drives you a little crazy. I gotta pick Jill up at four in the morning. She comes once a year and she's leaving on Sunday. But during the holidays... Jack, no fighting this year. There's no escaping it when it's your sister. How we doing? Your twin sister. Are you going bald? Huh? No, 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 you're getting fatter and your hair doesn't realize it needs to cover more face. Okay. From the producers of Just Go With It and Grown Ups. Twin two are so alike. We are nothing alike, I promise you. <laughs> she isn't subtle. Jill, this is Otto. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you! He's homeless, right? Are you whispering with a bullhorn or something? Everybody hears you. <laughs> Justin, it just, it's hard to explain <laughs> how much it rang true to me when it comes to it's not so much the twin part of it, though that's obviously a big part of it, but it's being a member of a family who embarrasses you. Um, which is why I like that movie last night so much. Being a <laughs> member of a family that embarrasses you and getting over that is what Jack and Jill is about. There's uh, there's plenty of humor I think is genuinely funny, like all the Al Pacino stuff, and plenty of stuff that I think is somewhat cringy. But um, I really think that 
Sandler's work as Jack and Jill is quite funny. So I'm sorry. <laughs> I, 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 I have soiled your podcast. You brought me on and I threw Jack and Jill in the, in the five slot. And when you, and when you, when you hear what I put it above, what I was, what I was fighting between, I think you'll, you'll disrespect me even more, but here it is. Number five, Jack and Jill. You know, I figured this would be on your list just because of how hard you fought to keep it on that Razzie draft. And I got to say, I don't think anybody has lobbied as hard for Jack and Jill as you did in that episode. I will say that although I'm not a huge fan of Adam Sandler comedies, I do think that the Dunkachino insert in this movie is hilarious. And it's one that I've used on this show as one of my fake ads um, Justin <laughs> Liberty from Vinegar Syndrome wrote in a review that he sees this as a secret sequel to Devil's Advocate and Al Pacino's playing the devil. <laughs> and I think it even makes it better. That's possible. That's possible. Pacino is <laughs> Pacino is, is operating on another level in this movie. Um, yes. I, I I can't even I can't even really you know, like explain how how perfect I think this weird ass film is. But you know, the thing is there is someone who is, who was, who has ridden as hard for me as this movie. And it's the internet's least favorite film critic, Armand White. Oh, who, (laughs) who I find find endlessly fascinating because I think, I think it feels like he is very clearly and very obviously a troll. Yeah. Uh, but, but, what what I think he's done is almost make a bet with himself that he can uh, defend any movie uh, as if it were high art. And his review of Jack and Jill is so <laughs> erudite and elevated. It's 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 all about Jewish identity and it's all about you know the duplicity of man and it's really kind. Of- <laughs> It's really kind of fun, and you know, you uh, you get the right mind space, and, and it kind of works for you in that way. But yes, Jack and Jill number five. I'm I'm so sorry. All right, I'm gonna have to look up that Armand White review after this show, and um, yeah, I, I can't argue with what he does in his reviews. I mean, I've I've heard interviews with him on uh, from like Dave Chen, and right after he was the first critic, and really I think the only critic at the time to give Toy Story three a negative review, and he was. He did an interview with Dave Chen where he tried to defend that stuff, and the man comes up with good arguments, although I'm not sure he believes them himself. That's exactly what it is. He 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 is he's a, he's almost I, I no one reads Armand White, no one takes him seriously, but he's almost a necessary counterbalance to the self seriousness of film criticism, because the way he writes about these horrible movies as if they are good kind of makes me at least re. Uh, reevaluate the way I look at movies that are actually good. Like, can I defend this? Can I, is this coming from a place of honesty or am I just, you know, reverse arm and whiting and telling you why I like this film um, that I don't really love because it's something that's in favor with a certain group of people. So I do try to be super honest. Um, I, I, to be honest, I'm not always true to myself, but my, Jack and Jill love is pure, Jason. (laughs) All right, Jack and Jill at number five. Uh, My number five, I guess I'm going to knock the one off the list that kind of breaks your rules for for the twin uh, movies on your list. 
This one is from a 2021 film, so I hope that you've seen this movie, because if not, this is a spoiler. Uh, this the, the movie is Malignant. I'm having visions. Dr. Florence Weaver was found brutally murdered in her home this morning. Did you know her? No, but I saw her die. I'm seeing things. I'm seeing murders as they're happening. Hello? He says his name is Gabriel. I think he's someone from my past. Whatever happened to you before you joined our family hurt you in a way that I can't even imagine. Stop saying that. I've seen Malignant. I have not. I have not, but that's interesting to me. I, I now I want it now I want to watch it more. <laughs> okay, well I hope you're not adverse no, I, to, to spoilers. No, I watch first of all, I love, I'm totally cool with spoilers. And second, I tend to watch all the 21, 20, 21 films like now. Yeah. Uh yeah. you know. So cool, yeah. Spoil it. Okay, uh, Malignant is a James Wan film, and first off, it is a wonderful combination of two-thirds melodrama and then one-third of the most batshit insane climax you can, you can ever see. Now, the twins in this are Madison and Gabriel, and Madison is the character that we follow most of the time, and then we find out later that uh, she has a conjoined twin that was supposedly taken out of her, but was actually stuffed back inside of her and has come back from its dormant state. That's, That's how these twins are. It's, it's not like other twins, because when Madison goes to sleep, Gabriel, in the form of this little kind of looking like an alien head, pops out of her skull at the back of her head and uses the body, takes over the body, to do nefarious things, but they because the head's in the back of her head, is everything's done with the body walking backwards. So oh it looks insane. It's ridiculous. It's a, just a ton of fun. The movie's a ton of fun. And there's a scene in a police station that happens in the last third of this movie that might be one of my favorite action scenes in the last 10 years. It is absolutely batshit insane. Annabelle Wallace plays Madison and also plays Gabriel backwards along with the help of some very talented stunt people. But uh, if you're into those movies that just go off the rails in directions you would never expect, Malignant is a fantastic example of that. And, it, um, you know, James Wan did Aquaman. And I have to believe that this was one of those scenarios where he's like, I want to make this movie. And they said, you know what? You make Aquaman. You can do whatever the fuck you want. And this is what he came out with. And it's just so much fun. Like, give this guy blank checks to keep doing original stuff. It's so good. I love that. Aquaman is is my platonic ideal for a superhero movie. Because as I've said before, it's not the best movie, but it's the most movie. And I am a a maximalist. And it sounds like... um, 
malignant is a uh, is a lower budget version of maximalism, which I'm really excited. I'm really excited about. If you watch this movie and and uh, you're finding it a little slow in in the first two thirds, just know that that last third is going to ramp up from zero to one hundred in ways that just boggle my mind still today. <laughs> Very excited. I will watch it ASAP. I wish I'd watched it for this draft. I mean, this, uh, this, this list, our force. So that is my number five. Number four for you, Kenny. Well, force is a segue. Not on purpose, but here we go. <laughs> this is my long lost twin movie. Um, the Empire Strikes Back. The new chapter in the continuing Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. Now, in our galaxy, the Empire Strikes Back. Empire Strikes Back is uh, is when it is revealed that Luke and Leia are indeed twins. Um, the reason I feel like this is less of a, uh, a a reveal, like like some other twin movies are, like a very prominent one that we'll talk about at the end, um, or versus part of the narrative, is because this is a saga. And uh, this affects what comes after it in both Empire and Jedi and the, 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 both the prequel and the sequels after that. Um, I mean, I love Empire. I think it is, uh, like everybody else, you know, head and shoulders above the, the rest of the films in this franchise. Um, I love the reveal that they're twins. I love the reveal that, that um, you know, they're both, you know, the children of Darth Vader. I think this is, you know, to me, why this film is so powerful that you don't realize you're watching a dysfunctional family in the beginning. And by the end, um, they have come together to save the galaxy. And they also have, you know, kind of destroy the family or sacrifice the family in the process. Um, I also think, and it's kind of a weird little thing, but uh, as we said in the beginning, there aren't a lot of movies about twins where the twin part is is not a huge plot point where the twins are are, are treated like characters and there's some <coughs> excuse me as someone who has boy girl twins there is something um empowering about having the most important people in the galaxy for that trilogy for that period of time be twins and be able to take it and i think that there is uh there is an there's an a, a in a little bit of an identity crisis that is thrust upon twins. This idea of you are the twins. You are, you know, you are you're with your sister. You are with your brother. You sh you share the womb. Um, and seeing someone like Luke or someone like Leia set off on their own and be as powerful as anyone else or more powerful, I do think weirdly is empowering to a very small group of people. And that's why I chose this film, even though it kind of fudges with my criteria. First off, that's a, a great choice that I didn't even think of when it came to twins. This never even registered on my mind. So great pull there. And uh, yeah, I can also see how that uh, that kind of lack of a, of dual identities and, and putting twins typically into one personality can. Yeah, it can be kind of uh, kind of a terrible thing to think about as somebody who's not a twin. Well, I think it's, you know, I think the, the thing about 
twins and why I, I, I like this topic so much is uh, is pop culture generally treats twins as a, a joke or a punchline or a, well, I guess that's the same thing or a reveal or a, a unit like in um I, I can't really think of an example. I was going to say in the Sandlot, but it's not true. But you, you, you see, like very often, they're just a, a, you know, just a set of twins who are repeating each other's lines or saying things at the same time or dressed alike, um, yeah. and and treated more as a sight gag. Like I mean, you can say Tweedledee and Tweedledum, or the twins in Shining, or there's really nothing there except quote unquote twins are creepy, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I, I think that's fine. You know, I'm certainly not trying to say twins are some kind of oppressed minority <laughs> group, but I just think that like there there's a there's a breadth to these people that pop culture uh, has kind of ignored. Um, and I think, I, I don't know, I, I've always thought it was super cool that they were twins. And having twins, I think it's even cooler. So, Great pick. Number four, The Empire Strikes Back from 1980. Kenny, what's better than one Jean-Claude Van Damme? I think the only answer is two. <laughs> two Jean-Claude Van Dammes. <laughs> now, Jean-Claude Van Damme has played twins multiple times. He was... Well, Maximum Risk starts off with his twin being killed, so that doesn't really count. And Replicant is about, like, dual personalities, but he gets to play two of them. But no, uh, my number four is 1991's Double Impact. Jean-Claude Van Damme always makes an impact. Now, get ready for Van Damme times two. Two of them. Think about it. Twin Brothers. Double Impact. Rated R. Feel the impact Friday, August 9th at a theater near you. This is Van Damme playing both Chad and Alex. This movie is ridiculous, but I'm going to stand by it as a really fun early 90s action movie. Van Damme does have some, some interesting subtleties to playing both of these characters, which I think is fun. Uh, he plays Chad, this like handsome polo wearing karate expert, of course, who was raised in Paris. And he also plays Alex, a cigar chomping, slick back hair criminal in Hong Kong who's like the shoot first and ask questions later kind of guy. It's funny because they they both grew up in totally different countries, apparently, but have the same Austrian accent when <laughs> neither one of them was raised in Austria. I guess a, a limitation of casting Van Damme in a movie like this, but... The, uh, the setup to the movie is that the two were separated as infants because their family has a hit put on them and uh, their, their parents are killed. But the nanny escapes with one to Hong Kong and the father's bodyguard escapes to Paris with the other one. And uh, Bolo Young is in this movie. So we get a, a really great face off with Bolo Young, his second after Bloodsport. It's just it's filled with really fun scenes like the introduction that we get to Chad. This is the the version of Van Damme that wears the polo and he's like a real ladies man. He's show, he's like teaching an exercise class with a bunch of women in these early 90s jazzercise leotards. And of course, he's showing off his flexibility and we get him doing the splits. Uh, it's <laughs> it's a constant battle between Alex and Chad once they get together because Alex has this buxom blonde girlfriend and he's constantly worried about Chad going to bed with her. And uh, it's just packed with 
like slow motion jump kicks, squibs, satisfying deaths. I stand by it as a really fun early 90s action movie, and uh, Van Damme, I think, does a pretty good job, other than the accent, of playing twins. Have you seen Double Impact before? I've seen almost everything John claude <laughs> Van is dumb. Nice. Uh, I'm crazy about him. Uh, if you've seen our or listened to our Universal Soldier 2 episode, mm-hmm. um, it's also kind of a Universal Soldier 1 episode, you know, and uh, yeah, I think he, I, I think he's just, just the greatest most fun action star um i'm okay with the the fact that he never really quite crossed over in um like he certainly did but he never really crossed over in that schwarzenegger way because we wouldn't have gotten all of these you know pure action mid-budget films that he excels at because he is a human uh he is a human special effect so yeah. I think it's uh, I think it's a it's a wonderful choice. I was really happy that you did that. So much fun, so much fun. Uh, number three for you. I I hesitated a little bit to put this on because of the actor who plays the twins in this movie. One actor plays two twins, but it is such an incredible depiction of high status uh, twinning. Uh, it's about. It's not about this particular character, but these twins are six foot five, 220 mm-hmm. pounds, and there are two of them. This is the social network with the Winklevi twins played by Army Hammer, who may or may not have done some stuff. What my brother and I came here today to ask of you, respectfully, sir, of course, is it's against university rules to steal from another student, plain and simple. You've spoken to your housemaster. Yes, sir. And the housemaster made a recommendation to the ad board, but the ad board won't see us. Have you tried dealing with the other student directly? Mr. Zuckerberg hasn't been responding to any of our emails or phone calls for the last two weeks. He doesn't answer when we knock on his door at Kirkland, and the closest I've come to dealing with him face-to-face is when I saw him on the quad and chased him through Harvard Square. You chased him? I, I, I saw him, and I know he saw me. I went after him, and then he disappeared. I don't see this as a university issue. Of course this is a university issue. There's a code of ethics and an honor code, and he violated You enter into a code of ethics with the university, not with each other. I'm sorry, President Summers, but what you just said makes no sense to me at all. I'm devastated by that. What what my brother means is, if Mark Zuckerberg walked into our dorm room and and stole our computer, that would be a university issue. I really don't know. This office doesn't handle petty larceny. This isn't petty larceny. This idea is potentially worth millions of dollars. Millions? Yes. You might just be letting your imaginations run away with you. Everybody knows the social network. Um, uh, I thought it was one of the greatest movies I'd ever seen when I saw it. I've watched it recently within the last three weeks. Um, I, you know, I, I watched some films specifically for this, but I kind of watched the social network all the time. It was my number one film of the, 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 the teens, the 20 teens when we did our list on our podcast. Um, the reason it's not higher on this list is because it, it doesn't center the twins. But mm-hmm. I think that um, I think there is something. I don't know if you've ever been in a, a situation where there are two or, you know, not to be redundant. There are an intimidating set of twins uh, near or around you. And it is unique. I know a set of twins who are about six foot four, two twenty. And the Baldwin twins, and fortunately, they are lovely people. But if they were not lovely people, you'd, you'd be pounded into smithereens. So I think the I think this omnipresent threat that the Winklevoss twins pose in the form of Army Hammer uh, add a element of danger to social network um, that otherwise it wouldn't have. 
And I think Mark Zuckerberg standing up to these particular people in Harvard um, kind of shows uh, just how ballsy this guy was. Now, Mark Zuckerberg is one of the worst and is certainly not the hero of this piece or not a classic hero, but uh, damned if he wasn't ballsy. And the way he ran circles around these guys was uh, was kind of thrilling. So, um, and I think much to your Jean-Claude Van Damme point, I think Army Hammer does kind of a brilliant job differentiating these twins who on paper are almost indistinguishable, but um, through their performances or through their characterization, you, you know which one it is every time. So I think that's kind of amazing. You know, I'm kicking myself here for not including this because I fucking love this movie and totally, again, another one that just totally slipped my mind. Jeez. All right. How do we transition from your number three, which is one of the best movies of, I mean, really of all time to my movie, which is definitely not. <laughs> I guess your your easy segue is that your twins in the social network are enormous men with a, a stature that would strike fear into the hearts of most people. And uh, mine are also enormous men who probably wouldn't strike fear into the hearts of people unless you were in a wrestling ring. These are my actual twins. These are the only characters on my list that are actual twins. They are the Barbarian twins in the film Double Trouble from 1992. Kenny, are you familiar with the Barbarian twins, Peter and David Paul? I'm not. I'm I'm looking this up right now. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Get into it. (laughs) <laughs> on most of my lists, oh I, my I try God. to include something. Oh, that, my God. Look at these dudes. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I always try to include something that screams so bad it's good because I love those movies. My wife, much to to her chagrin, she's like, why do you watch things that you know are bad? And it's just because for me, movies should be entertaining and, and movies like this are entertaining as hell. Now, the Barbarian Twins were massive bodybuilding twins who were identical and sported wow. identical impressive mullets. And they were in a couple of movies playing twins in like the late 80s, early 90s. They were in The Barbarians, which earned them the nickname The Barbarian Twins. They were in a movie called Twin Sitters, which I've never seen. And uh, another one called Think Big, which had to do with like uh, they were stowing away with some kid on a diesel truck or something. But their most outlandish peak movie in my eyes is 1992's double trouble you can tell how i mean look they're they're bad actors their names in this movie are peter and david so i'm guessing like <laughs> they just had to name them that so the director wouldn't get mixed up or something uh david is your movie 90s cop and when i say movie 90s cop they're these cops that never exist in real life who could just wear whatever they wanted as long as they had a badge dangling around their neck and they could drive sure. whatever they wanted so He wears a crop top Raiders sweatshirt throughout this movie and drives a multicolored beat up T-top Thunderbird. And he's got to be the world's worst police officer. And then the other twin plays a diamond thief. So you get uh, opposing sides of the law, right? Opposing sides of the same coin. But uh, somebody tries to kill Peter to take his share of a diamond heist. And then the two team up to go after the bad guys. This sounds so good. Yeah, it's, it's wildly entertaining. There's a scene where, you know, typically in movies like this, especially in the early 90s, you see somebody go back to their apartment and you get this like hot, steamy sex scene. 
In this movie, we get the cop, he goes back to his house, he greases himself up, and he gets on a on a workout bench. And he starts <laughs> pumping iron. And if my wife had walked by during this scene, she probably would have thought that I was watching a porno. She probably would have right. thought that it was a sex scene because he is grunting. We've got uh, close-ups of just glistening skin. There's also a scene where, you know, their whole shtick is that they're bickering all the time. They're fighting all the time. They just don't get along. But it, it, at the same time, it looks like they're having a great time not getting along. And we get this scene where they start messing around with each other and then they start wrestling. And they wrestle. This is a good five-minute scene that shows them wrestle through an apartment complex, down the stairs, into the streets, fucking through somebody's back seat like a Mentos commercial at a stop sign. And they just keep rumbling in this. It's it's hilarious. It's about the dumbest Who film made ever this made. Film? Uh, you know what? It I mean, the director the, I see. It's the genie from Pee Wee's Playhouse directed this movie. <laughs> I see. <laughs> I see. It's John Paragon. I see that. Yeah. It, it's it's it has a real it has a real trauma vibe to me. What you're what you're <laughs> describing. It's a it's a blast. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. And uh, the Barbarian Twins. They are wildly entertaining in how inept they are on screen, but I can't help but love the, this certain charm that a movie like this has. And it looks like they're having a great time, which which makes it even better. It looks great. It really does. I'm, I, I wonder if my son would be into that. I think he would. Cool. <laughs> yeah, that's double trouble at my number three. My next two picks are way more serious. And uh, uh, I, I'm wondering if we're going to have any crossover so number two for you, Kenny. I think, I don't know. I think one might, I mean, I, who knows? You know, you know, I didn't see double trouble coming. So you're, uh, you're an enigma. <laughs> um, number two from the, uh, the, the world's largest twins to the world's skinniest twins in the skeleton twins. Hey, have you read Marley and me? Yeah. Sad. Why is it sad? You don't know what happens? No, that's why I'm reading it. Does the dog die at the end? No, I'm not saying anything. Look how much I had left. <sighs> I was thinking you'd come stay with me. So okay if I tell him? We're trying to get pregnant. That's great. And yep. you say we are because it's not sexist that way, right? That's what you told me. Yeah. I can't wait to be the creepy gay uncle. You're hired. Well, last I heard you moved to L.A. to be an actor. Yeah, did you not hear I won an Oscar? Oh. Surprise. Oh, back from the dead. What are you doing here? Um, when do the boys show up? It's dyke night, sweetie. It's what? Dyke night. It's, uh, it's an, a pretty incredible movie. It's Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig are estranged twins. They haven't seen each other in 10 years. They were uh, very close as children. Bill Hader is gay and moved to LA in order to become an actor. And he has kind of failed at that. And he, we start the movie with him attempting suicide. Um, Kristen, we gets the call and kind of brings him out to go live with her while he coalesces a little bit. He, she lives in their hometown, Nyack, New York, which is near where I grew up. And he comes home and, and hangs out with her. Meanwhile, she was considering suicide at the same time. She got the call and it kind of broke that moment up. We find out that they had kind of a rough childhood. Their father was very weird. Their mother was, you know, kind of absent. Bill Hader was um, in a pedophilic relationship with a teacher at one point uh, that he still hasn't kind of come to grips with was 
you know, was rape and, and wasn't consensual. Luke Wilson plays Kristen Wiig's husband. He is incredible as this, um, as this dude, this, this, just this, this nice dude who is nowhere near their level of sarcasm and snark and, and meanness and, and, you know, misanthropy and there it's, it, it, it's it's very prickly, and then there are these moments where Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig, uh, there are, there are th- kind of three moments in the film where they're just magic together and just act like what they are, which is, you know, kind of real-life best friends or twins. They have not a language, not this silly language. They have, like, an emotional heart connection that kind of winds up saving both of them. Um it, it it is the only movie I've ever seen about boy girl twins that treats them like people and doesn't treat them like uh, weirdos who sleep together. Like the House of Yes is like about male girl male uh, male female twins who used to sleep together. So it's it, there there are these you know these urges and impulses to do kind of weird um, uh, transgressive things when you have two people born at the same time and were raised together and, you know, kind of shared a life like that. But, um, this is so hum- humanistic and, uh, gives our character so much dignity. You know, there, it, it's a little awkward watching Bill Hader play a, uh, an, an effeminate gay man in 2022. But I, uh, I think he does like a, like a really incredible job, um, locating the, the, the core of this character and, Kristen Wiig's incredible. It's a great film. It's a really, really great film. There's there's no excuse why I haven't seen this yet. I I honestly don't know why I haven't seen it yet. I think Kristen Wiig is amazing, and Bill Hader is turning into one of my favorite actors with Barry. His his work on Barry is just fucking amazing. Uh, I I gotta yeah. see this. Yeah, you you. It's this. I think this is like 07. So this is kind of early days for Bill Hader breaking out of SNL, and. It's, you know, I think, I think there's, um, this idea that there's like a lot of Stefan in this character and, but there isn't right. It's not really that at all. It's, um, it's just, it's a, it's a very serious, you know, Bill Hader is, is Barry. He's the straight man in a comedy. So it's a very serious lived in intelligent performance. All right. That's the skeleton twins. I got to check this out. I got to check this out. All right. Uh, my number two is the one where, geez, if, if we're going to have a crossover, I think this is where it might cross over. This was number one on my show with your counterpart, Phil, when we did top five movies about writing. This is Adaptation from 2002. What? You want to hear my pitch? Go away, goddammit. Okay, there's a serial killer, right? Well, no, wait. And he's being hunted by a cop. And he's taunting the cop, right? Sending clues who his next victim is. He's already holding her hostage in his creepy basement. So the cop gets obsessed with figuring out her identity and in the process, falls in love with her. Even though he's never even met her. She becomes like, like, like the unattainable, like, like the holy grail. It's a little obvious, don't you think? Okay, but here's the twist. We find out that, that the killer really suffers from multiple personality disorder. Right? See, he's, he's actually really the cop and the girl. All of them are him. Isn't that fucked up? The only idea more overused than serial killers is multiple personality. 
On top of that, you explore the notion that cop and criminal are really two aspects of the same person. See every cop movie ever made for other examples of this. Mom called it psychologically taught. This is a semi-autobiographical account of Charlie Kaufman struggles to adapt Susan Orling's book, The Orchid Thief, into a screenplay. He's suffering from writer's block. It's got elements adapted from the book. It's got these fictitious elements, including the twin brother Donald, who is not a real person, but was credited as a writer for the film. Great movie, uh, nominated for four Academy Awards, and Nicolas Cage was nominated for both of his, his roles here. It just shows the acting prowess of Nick Cage as he plays this, on one hand, this sad sack Charlie Kaufman, who's uh, kind of balding a little more up top, and he's uh, real cynical, and he's just kind of always looks depressed. And then on the other hand, you have this very aloof character of Donald, who is like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to write a screenplay. And then he goes to a seminar about screenwriting and almost immediately sells the screenplay for a million bucks. There's just so many classic moments in here with the two of them. And it all kind of, for me, comes down to this moment where uh, Donald is explaining the premise of his idea, which is going to be a screenplay called The Three. And Charlie's listening to this like, oh my God, this is terrible. And by the way, how can you have someone held prisoner in a basement and have the same person <laughs> working in a police station? And Donald just says, trick photography. And it's such like a simple moment of his naivete, but at the same time, that's exactly what you're seeing on screen with these oh. two. It's just a wonderfully acted movie on all accounts. It's one of my favorite Nicolas Cage performances as this nuanced, subtle duo. And, you know, if if you're if you haven't seen Adaptation for some reason and you've seen stuff like his, um, you know, his more wild roles like Face Off and stuff like that, this is a different a different Nicolas Cage. This is the Nicolas Cage that won an Academy Award. This is the Nicolas Cage that was snubbed for an Oscar nomination for Pig, which is another great nuanced movie and performance by Cage. But gosh, adaptation from 2002. I know that it was my number one with Phil, but I just could not leave it off this list. He just plays such a great pair of twins. Was it both of your number ones? It was, yeah. We matched up on it, yep. Mine too, man. It's my number one yes. on this one. <laughs> How could it not be? It's the best. It's so. I, I mean, as as soon as as, as soon as uh, you said twins, I pretty much knew this was going to be number one. Um, and the only you know hesitation I had was, oh my god, Phil and I are going to have the same number one or two totally different <laughs> lists. Uh, but I got over that. This is the only answer um, for everything you said, for everything Phil said on the 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 previous podcast um i i i think it's it, i think it's just an incredible film about screenwriting i, I think it's oh two or oh three is that right oh two yeah <laughs> uh so i was in college uh planning on being a screenwriter and it is at once the most inspirational and uh foreboding film about moving and becoming a hollywood screenwriter you know ever made and the kind of beauty and brilliance of it is this is this idea of the twins basically one is sadly who everyone kind of aspires to be and the other is who everyone kind of winds up being um having done this for a long time now i've been out here 17 years and been like a writer for about 12 
uh, yeah, I came out here thinking I was going to be Charlie Kaufman, and I think I've kind of turned into Donald Kaufman. Kaufman. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think this is the one instance where the device of the twins as storytelling and narrative thematic device, which is clearly how it's being used in this film, does not also strip these two characters of their dignity as human beings. In fact, Donald has so much dignity in this film, it's shocking. It's shocking that in the end of the day, uh, Charlie Kaufman gives the film over to his, you know, baser, more commercially minded, but like the guy who also gets the job done part of himself and allows that character um, to carry the movie across the, you know, across the finish line or the goal line. So uh, I I love it. I love the the way the twins are done. It, It embodies in many ways. What I love about the previous four films on my list. Um, and it's also just so funny and so brilliant and so fun and so inspirational and aspirational and truly one of one of my ten favorite films. So I'm I'm I am super curious as to what your number one is. There's so many ways to know. <laughs> well, I'm I was gonna say, you know, there now I'm kind of regretting not putting it as my number one, but uh one of my favorite directors of all time made a movie about twins in 1988. And I was trying to come up with, with the way to put these in order on my list. And it's like, well, do I want to have the same number one that I had with Phil? And I, I thought, you know what, this is a, a movie that I've never talked about on this show. And I think it deserves some shine because sometimes it's, uh, it, it's not as popular as David Cronenberg's, other 80s films, and this is Dead Ringers. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Beverly Mantle. By every scientific measure, they are absolutely the same. They share everything. You haven't had any experience until I've had it too. Bev, you've got to try the movie style. She's unbelievable. Doctor, you've cured me. You mean to say there's two of them? They're twins, dear. I think we should drop her, Beth. You drop her. I'm in love with her. I'll be in love if it does this to you, Kenneth. Doctor, I think there's something wrong with you. Are you familiar with Dead Ringers? Yeah, this is this is uh, <laughs> what I said. What what I what I said when I tell you what my number six is, I'll have even less credibility. <laughs> it was okay. between this and Jack. It was between this and Jack and Jill. <laughs> and I I really like. I just I know it sounds so stupid. Like obviously dead riggers, obviously dead riggers. But like <laughs> at the end of the day, I just like I got I got to go with my heart. So <laughs> I think dead riggers is amazing and brilliant. I think Jeremy Irons is brilliant. But um, I had a feeling uh, I had a feeling it would be on your list. So well, you 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 played that card right. Yeah, these are definitely the uh, the most connected and at the same time the most disturbing twins on my list. Cronenberg's made a ton of movies about human psychology, and this one is no different. It's about the connectivity of these twins and separation anxiety. We get to see these twins through three different stages of their lives. They're named Elliot and Beverly, like you said, played just brilliantly by Jeremy Irons. 
And throughout the years, these twins are never separated. They're always together. They work in the same field. They work in the gynecology field. They live together. They even share women, unbeknownst to the woman. We get the, we get this great line from uh, Elliot where he says, you know, if we didn't share a woman, if we didn't share women, you'd still be a virgin because Elliot's the more <laughs> outgoing, more aggressive twin. Beverly's the more reserved, researched-focused twin. And everything is going okay for these brothers until uh, Elliot sleep th- sleeps with this famous actress, and he, like they do, share the the woman. And so Beverly sleeps with her and then starts getting feelings for her. And things, obviously, as you as you might expect, get really weird as the twins have this rift between them for the first time. And it turns into a complete breakdown of Beverly, which then leads to mm-hmm. a complete breakdown of Elliot. And it's just a, a fantastic movie. It's an early example of a more, I guess, serious and, and grounded Cronenberg, because up to this point, you'd seen stuff like The Fly and Videodrome. And there is a dream sequence that feels like that typical body horror moment. And there is some insanity at the end, but it's it's definitely a more grounded more uh, reserved Cronenberg. And I can't say enough good things about Jeremy Irons. When I said like Van Damme had these moments where you could tell he was playing two different characters, Irons is fantastic at playing two very distinctly different twins in this movie. So it it was an internal wrestle for me. What goes at number one adaptation or Dead Ringers? But uh, either one would have been great choices at the top. So Dead Ringers 1988, that is my grand finale. The the yeah, what you're what you're talking about is I mean it's really just such a such a feat and feast uh because not only is Jeremy Irons playing these two different twins, he's very often playing these twins impersonating the other one. Yeah. So you 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 kind of have to get in this you you really have to focus and kind of all right, this is Beverly pretending well it's really usually Elliot <laughs> pretending to be Beverly or Beverly pretending to be Elliot I think the there's a, some there's a great line where the actress has heard a little bit about them and says is it true you sleep in the same bed and he is so mortified because it's true that these 35 year old or 40 year old <laughs> doctors sleep in the same bed I think it's um this is very much uh what happens if twins kind of are left to raise themselves which you kind of see in the beginning of the movie they seem to be kind of left to to raise themselves and almost like the winklebuy uh there is you know they're they're like the the they're the intellectual equivalent of the winklebuy they're they're that level of like intellectual superiority and uh they just use it for their own personal gain and benefit at all times um it's a it's a it's a startling movie. Um, yeah, it it kind of didn't make my list in part because it is such a negative depiction of twins. But oh, is, uh, yeah. but I but I you know the the idea of you know duplicitousness uh, and deceit. But um, it is an incredible film. Any I, I, I do want to kind of oh go ahead. I was going to ask if you had any honorable mentions that uh, just kind of missed your list aside from Dead Ringers. Well, I wanted to commend you on not picking one movie. Uh, oh, if you don't what do you mind. got? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I initially, when I first started formulating this list, um, the two movies I, I were 
confident we're going to be on it were Adaptation and The Prestige. Mm. Um, But The Prestige, you don't know that a character is a twin until literally like, you know, the last frames of the film. And uh, it is not about twins at all, even kind of. So, uh, um, so I had a bunch that, you know, were not on my list where twins are prominent. Um, I think Gone Girl is an interesting depiction of twins. And I think uh, Bowfinger is an interesting depiction of twins. And um, there's kind of one, I mean, there are a few older movies that I, I consider like Palm Beach story also has a twin reveal, which is funny and, and great and lovely. But again, it's a reveal. So in terms of movies that almost made the list, I think gone girl is probably the one I would have thought, uh, I, I was considering outside of dead bringers and then maybe possibly in another life, if I was in a different mood, uh, Euro trip which has two of the four kids are twins and it's so incidental to the movie. And I love that about it. You're right. I didn't even think about Euro trip. That's a, a, a great pull there. And I love Euro trip. I think Euro trip's a great film. It's super funny. Um, but yeah, they're just, it's uh it's Harriet, the spy and one of the guys are Michelle Trachtenberg. And one of the guys are just twins and they're just friends and they will not be sleeping together throughout that movie. And I think that, you know, that in and of itself makes the dynamic of those four different from more, most movies in that oeuvre. The Prestige did enter my mind, but like you said, it, it really isn't about the twin experience. I guess the movie doesn't really work if they're not twins, but at the same time, you know, as the audience, you don't see the twins until the very end. So uh, that didn't really fit into what I wanted to go for here. There were a couple of movies that just kind of narrowly missed. The first that would have been my number six is a movie called Basket Case from the uh, mid 80s. Have you heard of Basket Case before? Yeah, I've heard of it. And I was hoping I was kind of planning to watch it, but I didn't get around to it. Yeah, it's a really schlocky horror movie. Uh, And the reason I didn't put it on my list was because Malignant has a similar type of vibe to it. So I didn't want to get too, too crazy. But it's also about a person who has a conjoined twin that he keeps in a basket <laughs> next to this him. Looks amazing. Yeah. And it spawned to like direct to video store shelves sequels. I think there was two of the sequels, at least two. Um, the other two that almost made my list, this one didn't make my list because double impact was on there, but Jackie Chan has a movie called twin dragons. Yeah. He's kicking ass as twins. So that one almost made my list. <laughs> and then uh, one that I've always been fascinated about the twins in this movie, but Again, the twins really don't have much to do with with the proceedings. Is the uh, the ghost twins from Matrix Reloaded? I've always loved those oh. characters. They have a great look. Yeah, I watched that recently because we did uh, we did what was the new one called? Not Revolutions, Resurrections. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. In terms of kind of those like incidental twins, I, I think they're awesome. I think The Shining. That's a, just a very cool kind of visual. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's one other movie I kind of wanted to shout out that was very close, uh, but also didn't kind of fit my criteria, which is Sisters. It's the Brian De Palma movie before Carrie. And uh, Margot Kidder is just incredible in this film. And it's like it's it it, it kind of veers into this pseudo sciencey, 
almost, you know, uh, human experiment territory by the end, but it kind of starts out as a, as a, um, lo-fi PI movie. And if you watch it, you'll see a lot of these depalmisms like the, like the split screens, you know, early on in his career. And it's just kind of a fascinating for him, but the, the reveal is not quite, uh, all that satisfying, but good film. Yeah, Sisters is a great movie. I didn't put it on my list because I just talked about it on on a different show. But oh yeah, uh, what yeah, list? We, that came up on top five ripoffs. Uh, the guest picked it on top five ripoffs. Now they were arguing that it was a ripoff of Hitchcock movies, and I argued that it was more uh, more pulling from like Polanski stuff with the Hitchcock cinematic language. But um, yeah, that's when I talked about that guy. Definitely, I, I, you know. I, I, it was all, it was made only what, four or five years after Rosemary's baby, but it felt very Polanski to me. Yeah. Um, and I'm, re- I'm trying to kind of, well, I'm, I'm trying to kind of work my way through De Palma's filmography because I always kind of thought he was kind of a garbage man. And I am just coming to around to the fact that I'm totally wrong and he's so fucking fascinating and thrilling his movies. So, uh, I love De Palma. yeah, you could put almost, I, I, I should too. Uh, yeah, he's, he's, just, he's, he's great for whatever reason whenever he came up for air in the 90s and 2000s and made something a little more commercial it was terrible um oh, yeah. yeah and i think mission impossible is terrible so uh i would include that but um i think snake eyes is terrible i think femme fatale is pretty terrible so it's really this stuff that he and i think you know untouchables is not really the work of a you know auteur it's a great studio movie. So I think it's the stuff that I didn't see as a, as a younger person that I've seen now, like, um, like sisters and, you know, and carry and blow up and all these great movies that, uh, I wish I'd seen younger, but he's, he's awesome. I was wrong. Yeah, there was, um, I talked about it a little bit more on that show, but there was a weird time where De Palma just kind of stepped into the shoes that Polanski left open. And I think that was like his in, and he just got really, I've, I've seen the documentary De Palma by, um, I think Bombach directed it, but it really yeah. outlines like the, how, how dissatisfied he was with the Hollywood stuff. You know, what really did turn me on him was reading, there's the book on the bonfire of the vanities, um, the making of that. I don't remember the title, but it can't be hard to find, uh, where a lot of the, um, text is about De Palma. And about right. you know his his early life and his education and his early films and how you know bootstrappy he was and all that stuff and that kind of made me reappraise him initially. Um, but yeah, the it's called I think it's called the Devil's Candy. Have you heard of that the book? I have not, but I'm interested. I'll have to. It's I'll called the it's out. called the Devil's Candy, and they also made a podcast. Uh, on it recently and it's about the you know just kind of the disaster that was the bonfire of the vanities but it's a it's a great book i'll have to check that out i'll check out the podcast too uh last one i wanted to mention because my wife would kill me if i didn't this was her pick parent trap she loves the parent trap i've never seen it but she loves it <laughs> <laughs> i've seen i've seen it many times uh my it's one of my daughter's favorite movies uh it's lovely and charming and it's about long lost winds it very quickly was off my list but <laughs> oh kenny nybart Awesome list. Uh, let's plug your stuff. So obviously, podcasts like it. So you can find podcasts like it's ninety nine anywhere you can get your podcasts. Make sure to go to the Patreon. Where can people go to to support you on Patreon? 
Uh, I don't know. Uh, Phil knows his stuff. <laughs> just Google <laughs> it. Just Google it. Yeah, Google it. Patreon. I think it's Patreon. It's Patreon. I don't know. Patreon I'll, I'll put podcast. the link in the show notes. I'll put the link Thank in the you. show notes. <laughs> uh, I, you and you told me that you were going to uh, do plugs, and I should have paid attention. Let's see if I can. That's do this okay. <laughs> it's uh, it's yeah. I don't know. It's Patreon. This is this is what good podcasting is. Us furiously googling things right now. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just Google Patreon podcast like it's, and you will find our series on uh, 1989, and soon we'll be doing one on 2009. We have uh, some awesome guests lined up for 2009. Right in the beginning, we have um, well, we just had Karina Longworth on for Batman. We just had Aaron Thomas, Aaron Sean Thomas, the creator of SWAT, on for Do the Right Thing. Uh, we're going to have Liz Hanna on for Star Trek coming up. We have Ashley Lyle who created Yellow Jackets along with Jordan Cruciola on for Jennifer's Body. Um, we, uh, we're doing all sorts of great films and, um, have, you know, really exciting guests. So please check that out in April. Check out Step Up season three on stars. Um, show I write and produce, on and it's really truly a good show you can watch the early episodes also on stars on demand season seasons one and two but um really proud of it it's the best dancing on tv and uh different you know inspired by the series but but different and cool and fun and uh yeah that's that awesome all the links to all this stuff and kenny's social media will be in the show notes so Go follow, and then you'll be abreast of this stuff as it as it happens. What's your favorite set of twins in film? Let me and Kenny Nybart know on social media, at Force5Pod on Twitter, at Force5Podcast on Instagram, and your comment might just make it to the next show. If you liked what you heard, please review the show wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends to listen so they can debate and become listeners along with us. And finally, remember to go check out my appearance on podcasts like it's 1999 for more twin action. That sounds kind of raunchy. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some films about twins.